as it's summer and it's the middle of summer, I'm just uh, taking a few liberties and taking the opportunity to do my dodgy alto with the beautiful altos in the choir. It's great to have everybody here this morning. Just, um, just a few uh, little things if you're visiting. We usually, if we're able, stand up to sing, apart from um, the things we don't stand up to sing for, but you'll kind of work out which ones those are as and when we get to them. Um, when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we just invite people to use your own first language and whatever form of that prayer is familiar to you. We, we just delight in the diversity of languages that we can share at that point. And it's a sense of uniting us all with God's people throughout the globe. So we are in all-age worship, which means it is slightly mad, uh, but hopefully we can find our way through it together. Just join in in the way that is comfortable for you. You don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with, uh, but don't feel you can't do something just because you're visiting. We're going to sing our first hymn of worship, which is on the sheet. It will also appear on the screen behind me in a moment. Here in this place, new light is streaming. Thanks.
I'm going to lead us in a short prayer and then we join together in the Lord's Prayer in our own first languages and preferred versions. So let's pray together. Creator God, we worship you. In the beginning, you said, let there be light and light shone, piercing the darkness. You have made the vast universe and amidst its movements and glories, your spirit is at work. Scattering the stars and moulding the hills, you have made a world full of beauty. You have made humankind in your own image, stewards of the earth, partners in creation. We are here because of you. That we exist is your doing. You are our God, our parent, giving us life, lavishing gifts upon your children. The distances of space praise you. The depths of our hearts acknowledge your creating power. Creator God, we praise you. And we gather our praises and prayers together in the words Jesus taught his followers, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Now, I need some help. I'm not sure if I've got a picture for this one. I have got a picture for this one. Um, I'm going to need some help because we're going to do a building project this morning. We're quite into building projects in this church, deliberately or otherwise. But I could do with some help who would like to come and help me to build a tabernacle. Anybody want to come and help me build a tabernacle? Thank you, Sam. Um, I'm going to need a couple of these chairs because... Oops. The, uh, the walls of our tabernacle are decidedly wobbly, so we are going to need something to hold, help hold them up. Anybody else want to come and help me to make a tabernacle and destroy the church in the process, probably? Okay, coke. fantastic. Right, now a tabernacle is something that in the time when Jesus was living, at harvest time, the people who were going out to do the harvesting needed somewhere they could stay, they could get somewhere they could shelter in the daytime when it was hot and sunny to have their, their lunch or their rest breaks, and somewhere they could sleep at night. So they would build these little shelters. They had to have two walls. They could have two and a half walls. I don't know why two and a half, but that's something that they were into. Um, they weren't allowed to do it under a roof, so we're cheating a bit. And they weren't allowed to do it under a tree. It had to be in the open air. But apparently you were allowed to use one solid wall um, as part of it. So we've got some sort of walls that are a bit wibbly-wobbly. I wonder if you can help me. Right, can we put this wall up? Who's going to put this wall up by the chairs? And we're going to hope they don't fall down. But they probably will. Yep, see, it's a bit wibbly. Oh. Actually, I'll tell you what, we'll turn it that way round, so the wood's looking out that way. So it looks like it's wood that way, shall we? Will that work? What do you think? Is that going to stay? Okay. 
Right, who's going to help me with this one? Right, can you get hands? Can you get some hands to it? Right, let's put this one at the back there. That's good. Okay, lean that against the chair. We're getting there. Uh, and then we need one this side, don't we? Who's going to help me? Amelia, can you help me to put this wall up? I think we might need to put my chair around there. It's definitely chairs in this. This is a, this is a very wobbly tabernacle, this one. But that's okay, because somebody will be able to sit in it in a minute, won't they? Right, so can we pop that chair? I think we have to come out, Amelia, so we can put the chair in. Right, so... We can test it in a bit, but what's missing on our, our little shelter? We've got, the, we've got no roof. So I wonder if you can put a roof on for me. So first of all, we have to put something across the top. This is when it gets a bit dodgy, isn't it? Who's going to put something across the top? So will he reach? Um, I'm not sure. Do we have to move? Oh, we might have to put the sides in a bit. Make our tabernacle a bit smaller. Will they reach? Just about. Can you want to pop up one on for me, Sam? Right, lovely. Now we've got to put lots of branches on. Max, can you put some branches on? Max and Merida, you help putting the branches on the roof. Got lots and lots of branches to go on and cover the roof up to make a nice shelter. So can everybody help with this? Sam, do you want to come and help? Everybody pop some, pop some on. That's it. Brilliant. We do need to make... Why do we need to make a good roof? Because when it's raining, you need to stay dry. That's right. You need to stay dry when it's raining. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> right, I'm going to be the, the magic holder-upper of the wall. Okay, fantastic. So this is what a tabernacle would look like. It would be a bit bigger. Can you manage to get inside there and sit down? You have to sit, probably sit, have to sit on the floor, and we'll probably have to come out pretty quickly because it might well collapse. Can we squeeze in? Can five people squeeze in our teeny tiny tabernacle? Can you squeeze in, Merida? Yeah, oops, a daisy. Okay, so can you, if you look up at the roof, what's it like? Is it a completely solid roof or can you see through it? I can see through it. That's right. And what do you think you would be able to see if you were in there at night time? That's absolutely right. And that was one of the rules about the tabernacle, was you had to be able to see the stars at night. Whoa. To remind you. Oh, dear. I've I've got... Are you all right, Sam? Right, okay. Thank you for your help. That was a very wobbly tabernacle, wasn't it? So that's why they only had them for a little while, because they weren't particularly robust. But thank you very much for your help. So can you imagine having a, a little shelter like that to stay in? And that's what they did at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was when they remembered about when they lived in the wilderness after they left Egypt. And they would make these tabernacles, and Jewish people still do today in the autumn at the Feast of Tabernacles. They make slightly stronger shelters than this in their back gardens, and they will have their, their tea in there at least. And some of them, if they live in a place where it doesn't rain too much will actually sleep out in them. So that's the kind of background to what we're thinking about today is the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm just going to move the chairs out of the way so it looks vaguely like a church again. But I think I can leave those last few bits there. So thank you ever so much for your help in setting the scene. 
And one of the things um, that we're thinking about today is about light, and it will become apparent a bit later on why that connects to the tabernacles. You'd probably think, what on earth is this going at the moment? But there we go. We're going to sing a song about shining our light. I think some people will know it, this little light of mine. Thanks, Paul. Jesus often used stories and metaphors, pictures in his teaching. And sometimes the records that we have are so brief and the words so familiar that we don't really notice them. And the analogy of salt and light are in this category in just a few short sentences which are part of a much larger collection of teaching material recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But what if we could slow down a little bit and try to enter the story? What if we could try and put ourselves in the place of the gospel writer? So it's really hard, you know, looking back, thinking of all the stories that he told us, or at least told his friends and they passed on to us, thinking of the things he did, And what it all meant. There were so many days when hundreds of people would follow him up into the hills and we'd just sit and listen to those stories. So when I came to write them down in my gospel, 
the gospel you know as Matthew, it seemed like a good idea to collect a lot of them together. Um, You tend to call this the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, or whatever you call it, but it's a collection of the stories that Jesus taught us, told us. So when I was writing it down, I thought I'll begin with some words of encouragement because everybody needs a bit of encouragement. So I remembered the sayings he said about blessing. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who work for justice. Blessed are those who work for peace. I wanted people to feel that they were encouraged And then I'd got a whole lot of stuff he'd taught us about what that meant to live that out, about the law and and how you lived that out. But first, I remembered a story that he told, or a little story he told, about who we are. I've got some salt here, and I'd like you, if you would like to be willing to, to just pass it round. And if you would like to, you can just take a a grain of salt and, and taste it or um, hold it in your hand. This is very expensive salt. This is pink Himalayan rock salt, um, specially imported by camel from somewhere, um, because we have to use our imagination a bit. I'm going to try and get people to pass it along rather than, than me staying here all the time. So salt. Salt was very valuable when I was writing the gospel down. Roman soldiers would be given salt as part of their pay, Uh, And it was really important stuff for us in a hot country. And Jesus said, you're a bit like salt. And salt has got at least two important properties. Salt is something you add to your dinner to make it taste nicer. When you're cooking rice or cooking potatoes or whatever you're cooking, most people will pop in a little bit of salt to bring out the flavour Or perhaps if you go out and somebody serves you some food and you think, oh, that's a bit bland, then you'll add some salt to it. So the first thing that salt does is make things taste better. It brings out the flavour that is already there. I think we're going to have to speed this up a bit. (laughs) So that's the first thing that salt does. The second thing that salt does, and this was very important in the time that I was writing the Gospel, is it helps to preserve things. You can get some meat or some fish and you can preserve it. You layer it with lots and lots of salt and it preserves it. It keeps it, makes it stay nice. Because in a hot country, trust me, the fish will go off very quickly and smell pretty horrible. But also you can use it to preserve vegetables. You can layer onions and beans with salt. And perhaps there are some of you, even in the 21st century, who still do this. So salt was really important. And Jesus said, that's what I want you to be for the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And then he used another image. And I've got a very small candle here. And we'll start passing that uh, from some different people in a different direction. Go to the front row here. We've not had the salt yet, and we'll send it that way. It's just a small candle. Sorry, this isn't going to work, is it, David? Sorry. All my best weighed plans of pretend Matthews. So this is a little tiny candle, and as you pass it round, you can enjoy the scent of it, because it is a scented one. But you can also see how small it is, 
how easy it would be to drop it and knock it out, how a strong gust of wind would blow it out, and it would be lost. And in a bright room like this, even though it's a dull day, it doesn't really make much difference to light one candle. But if you were to go out at night when it's really dark and go up to a hill or out into a place where there are no street lights, that little candle would shine its light a long way. And Jesus said to us, that's what you're like. You are the light of the world. In fact, when I wrote it down and I wrote my gospel down in Greek, I chose my words very carefully. You are the light of the cosmos. Imagine that. People like us to light the whole universe. And that was it. He didn't say anything to explain it. He didn't tell you all the things that I've told you. He just said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the cosmos. And he left us to work out what that meant. We're going to continue to explore this theme of light, specifically, um, as we move on to our different zones now. So you're very welcome to stay put where you are and listen to uh, a Bible reading and me talking. If you would like to go and do something creative, up on the mezzanine with Emma, we've got some uh, glass jars and some painting to make your own little lights to shine. Uh, If you like to do colouring or puzzles, we've got those at the back in the snug. If you're very little and you just need a bit of space, then the memorial room is the place to go uh, with a parent to just to to be in there. Um, You can move around during things if you wish to, although you'll probably find it a bit distracting if you do. I know some people like the puzzles, but they don't think they should do them in church. If you want to get a puzzle to take home later... It's totally fine. But we're going to have some music and you're invited just to move around as we continue to explore what God has to say to us through these stories. Now we hear some words from John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, My testimony is valid because I know where I have come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid 
For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I expect of all the I am sayings of Jesus, this one is the best known. Even people with little or no interest in Christianity seem to be drawn to the famous Holman Hunt painting, The Light of the World, with its Victorian white Western Jesus with his long blonde hair and his blue eyes. Post-resurrection, he has actually got holes in his hands. Standing at a door surrounded by ivy, holding a light in his left hand and knocking on the door with his right hand. The painting, and actually there are three versions of it, apparently, is very rich in complex metaphorical imagery, much of which isn't obvious to the untrained eye, or at least not to my untrained eye. Uh, Perhaps the painting is every bit as mysterious as what it is trying to convey. For the author of the fourth gospel, the gospel we know as John, this metaphor is clearly really important. It comes as part of the prologue, in which the incarnate word of God is referred to as the light that shines in the darkness... And the darkness has not understood it, comprehended it, or overcome it. And it's this metaphor and its appropriation by Jesus for himself that would be heard in context as a divinity claim. And it was that that fueled the intense anger against him by the orthodox elite in a way that perhaps is not so obvious unless we understand a bit of the background. I know I say it a lot, so you're probably bored of hearing it, but every single gospel writer has deliberately selected and ordered the material they share to support the story that they've chosen to tell about Jesus. We believe that's guided by the Holy Spirit, but it's still four people selecting and choosing the material from the stories of Jesus that they want to share with us. 
And actually, sometimes it's in the words that seem to us to be almost a throwaway that we find the important hints to what is actually going on. And I think that's true with this second of the I am sayings. Because in the previous chapter, we are told that it is the festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths. And so devout Jews would have been building shelters a little bit less rickety than the one we attempted to make, and they would either live in them or eat their meals in them during the week-long celebrations. And it turns out that knowing a little bit about that festival is really important to making any sense of what John 7, 8, and 9 have to say. Perhaps it's worth just mentioning before we get into this, uh, there is a story at the beginning of John 8 that we all love, the story of the woman taken in adultery. That is just slotted there. That's, it's just been plonked in. Everybody who's a scholar agrees that it probably didn't originally sit there. So we can be sort of a little bit derailed in our reading if we, if we go off and explore that story. So let's just set that to one side for the moment and hear what we've heard from John 8 in the context of the flow of the rest of chapter 7 to 9. I wonder how much anybody here actually knows about the Sukkot or Tabernacles Festival, especially as it was celebrated in Jesus' time. I have to confess, despite being a quarter Jewish and occasionally reminding people of that, I didn't until I began to do some close studying of one of my commentaries on John. I knew it took place in the autumn, I knew it was around about September and October and it coincided with the main harvest season. I knew it involved these little tents or tabernacles, but that was about as much as I did know. And these shelters were the kind of things that people working in the fields definitely did use in those days, but they were also a symbol of the nomadic experience of the Exodus story, which is part of what this festival is calling to mind about God taking care of the people during the 40 years that they lived a nomadic existence after they left Egypt and before they entered the land they believed they'd been promised. So within this festival, which lasted a full week, every day the priests would take great big ceremonial vessels and walk down to the pool of Siloam, fill them with water carry them all the way back to the temple and pour them out onto the altar. It was an amazing spectacle to see this. You'd see the priests go off and come back. In they would go and pour the water. And it's in this context that Jesus is recorded in chapter 7 of John's Gospel as saying, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink So there's a lot of symbolism here about God providing water for the people when they were in the the wilderness, and Jesus, seeing that, is taking that to himself. And perhaps the, the pool of Siloam rings a bell when you hear that word. Siloam is where Jesus would send the blind man to wash the mud from his eyes, and certainly any early readers of the gospel would have immediately made that connection But of course, 2,000 years on, we've kind of forgotten about it. The Sukkot festival was and still is explicitly a joyful festival. 
And as part of it, each day would culminate in the evening with lighting at least three, although some sources say four. It seems to be a bit lost in the mist of time. Enormous oil-filled menorahs, lampstands, at the temple. And these were so tall that you had to get a ladder to climb up to light them. And apparently sometimes the wicks of these great beacons would be made by the worn-out clothes of the, the religious officials. And of course, because their clothes were quite sacred in a way, this somehow was seen by people to be part of the significance of this light as reflecting the Shekinah glory of God. And of course, the religious symbolism of these huge blazing beacons was to remind people of the column of fire in the night sky during the wilderness sojourn of the Exodus. But it wasn't entirely somber and sober. It was a joyful spectacle. You'd have these great torches, perhaps like the Olympic torch in our own time, visible over a huge distance. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. The temple on Temple Mount, the holy place, was a source of light, a symbol of the presence of God among the people. All that up there. But down at the ground, it was a time of great revelry. And apparently, you would find rabbis performing acrobatics and juggling and generally entertaining the crowds that would gather there. Probably a bit better than my tabernacle building, it has to be said. So this wasn't incredibly somber or sober. It wasn't an act of worship. It was a carnival. It was great fun for everybody. Think of a fun fair. Think of gay pride. Think of whatever it is. Something that really fills you with joy and happiness. That's the kind of thing that is the atmosphere that would be there then. And Jesus, seeing the flaming beacons of light against the night sky and knowing the huge religious symbolism hanging over the party below said, I am the light of the world. Or again, because of the Greek word chosen by the writer, I am the light of the cosmos. Those who follow me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The conversation which follows and which Barbara read for us shows that the religious authorities were getting increasingly concerned about what they heard very clearly as blasphemous divinity claims made by an itinerant preacher whose credentials, frankly, were not very clear. I mean, he came from that place called Nazareth up north. What the heck was that all about? God's presence experienced in a pillar of fire symbolised by these gigantic menorahs, is now claimed by Jesus for himself. And although they don't attempt to arrest him at this stage, his card is marked. The authorities start to watch ever more closely to see just where all this might lead. But what if we choose to focus not on the conversation but on the context. Because this seems to have taken place on the last night of the festival, and ordinary people were having enormous fun. 
This was the highlight of the year almost, in, in a fun kind of sense. Children would be staying up late to watch the entertainment, their eyes wide at the antics of those who perform. Ordinarily serious teachers would reveal their lighter side as they turned cartwheels or juggled perhaps even flaming thingies. Laughter filled the air and life felt good. Tomorrow, normality would be there. Tomorrow, the problems that had been set aside would have to be faced. But for this moment, hearts could be glad. Spirits light. Laughter could fill the air. And it's in that context, as the people begin to walk home along streets illuminated by these huge beacons, that Jesus says, not just, I can be light, but I am light. Walk behind me, and I will illuminate the way for you. The shadows of sin and finitude, the darkness of death and despair, they don't completely go away, because the work of redemption is still ongoing. But follow me. Keep alive that spark of hope within you. Allow joy to bubble up. Continue to laugh and see the lighter side. Continue to enjoy life. Let love abound. The great menorahs would burn out as the festival ended and they would remain unlit for a full year. The night sky would be dark apart from the stars and the moon, silent witnesses to the God who created all things. Jesus himself would leave the earth. His physical presence could no longer draw new followers. And so he entrusted the continuation of his work to those who had the audacity to believe that in some way he continued to light their way. And so perhaps we find ourselves turning back to the Gospel of Matthew as we try to root this in our everyday lives. Whilst John's Jesus claims for himself the title Light of the Cosmos, Matthew's Jesus gives that responsibility to his followers, to the disciples and to us. And that's a pretty huge challenge, isn't it? We are to be the light of the cosmos, the light of hope in this place and this time. Sometimes the church and its local expressions have made faith so incredibly serious and somber that it couldn't attract anybody to consider following Jesus. And I think we Protestant nonconformists are amongst the worst in that respect. We made our chapels and churches completely bare. We didn't want any fripperies. We didn't want candles. We didn't want paintings. We were to focus on the word, on the word alone. And we kind of lost some of the joy of the gospel along the way, I think. 
sometimes we need to start to look up again and see the ridiculousness of these lights in the night sky, these crazily big oil-filled lamps celebrating the God who is always present and reminding ourselves of that. But I think also sometimes we've taken our lights, little as they are, and we've hidden them. I actually did a bit of research on what a bushel really would have been in those days, because I'd always thought it was a bucket, and if you put a bucket over your lamp, it would burn out very quickly. But apparently they were baskets, so the oxygen could still get in, the lamp could still burn. But what's the point of a lamp that's burning if it's covered up and not able to do its work? What's the point of us having this joy, this hope, this faith, if we hide it away? And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of, like, it's all right, I can do it on a Sunday. But in the week, it's a bit hard. So I'm not criticising anybody else. If I'm criticising anything, it's the church through 2,000 years that has become so serious and so sombre and so concerned with minutiae of this verse or that verse that we've lost the spark of life. Perhaps this story and this image gives us permission to lighten up. Perhaps it allows us to laugh at ourselves and the ridiculous things we say and do. Perhaps it allows us to celebrate the God who is still good. Perhaps it allows us to rediscover in Christ a God who delights when we delight. Perhaps it reminds us that no matter how dark and confusing the world may seem, and it sure seems both of those to me at the moment, that Jesus is there with us, showing us one step at a time the way onwards to the fulfilment of God's promises. Perhaps these stories and these images encourage us to carry our own small lights, offering glimmers of hope to those that we meet along our way. Amen. And so we sing again, where shadows once were found, where death was loathed and feared, where men and women lived in gloom, a light has now appeared.
prayers of intercession this morning are interactive, so I would invite you, if you would like to, to take one of the light sticks as the um, baskets come around, and we will use those uh, within our, our intercessions. Uh, there are some light sticks up on the mezzanine and also in the snug, if anybody who's in those areas feels that they would like to join us in that act of interactive intercessory prayer. And I'll just wait while we get the baskets around to everybody. I'm kind of conscious that in um, a room with lights on, glow sticks don't show up very much, um, but these are going to be our symbol of our prayer. And the invitation is quite simple, really. As I introduce each petition of our prayer, inviting God to be light in a context, um, you're invited to snap like that, don't do it yet, (laughs) a bit of your glow stick. And when we get to the end, as we say amen, we'll give them a good waggle, um, and then we can bend them round and make them into bracelets to take away as a reminder of our prayers. And as we make the snaps, um, they start to light up. If you prefer just to sit in silence as we pray, that's also absolutely fine. The Gospel writer tells us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Trusting that to be true, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you said, I am the light of the world, so we bring our prayers in your name for a world in need of that light. May the light of hope shine in the lives of all those who live with anxiety and uncertainty. May the light of peace shine in the lives of all afflicted by violence, war, abuse or bullying. May the light of wholeness shine in the lives of those whose bodies, minds or spirits are injured or broken. May the light of justice shine in the lives of those who experience discrimination, oppression or injustice. May the light of joy shine in the lives of those who are disillusioned and despairing. May the light of generosity shine in the lives of all who enjoy wealth and freedom. May the light of compassion shine in the lives of all who exercise power and who influence nations. May the light of love shine in our lives, in our homes, in our church, as we seek to follow Jesus and to be light in this corner of your inbreaking kingdom. Amen. We may need to help each other to... Uh, bend them round into bracelets to remind us of our prayers.
God who spoke and light was born. God who in Christ lights our way. Accept these gifts as if they were our tiny candle flames of light. And let them be employed in this world of need. Amen. Our closing hymn, Longing for Light, We Wait in Darkness.
Our blessing today is adapted from a traditional form of evening prayer, but I think it's still appropriate. Lighten our darkness, Lord, we pray. And in your great mercy, keep us from the perils and dangers of the night. Lead us onwards in the footsteps of Christ, that we might carry the same light to the world of which we are part, this day, this week, and always. Mm -hmm.